All right, we have been journeying through the line, the witch, and the water. And we're in the moment before the moment. Advent, a season of uh, waiting, uh, of inner reorientation as we count down to Christmas. A chance to kind of realign our hearts. We, we talk about, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. And it becomes a little bit cliche. But Advent is this invitation to realign our hearts around, well, what's going on at Christmas? What's happening at Christmas? Why is there, why do we talk about Christmas magic? Why do we say, why do we talk about Christmas spirit? Why do we say there's something in the air at Christmas time? You know, why, why, why does the world kind of gather around that? And Advent's this invitation to kind of journey into some of those things. Uh, as we count down to Christmas, our celebration of Christ's Advent. Advent means arrival, Christ's arrival in the world. And like I said, we've been in the uh, line of the witch in the wardrobe. C.S. Lewis's, part of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Now, when Lucy goes through the wardrobe into this magical land of uh, Narnia, she finds a lamppost. And uh, she also has this encounter with this fawn. He's got goat feet and human body and goat horns, and he's a fawn. And she meets Mr. Tumnus, this fawn, and they, they get talking. Uh, and they get on really well. They become the best of friends. But the problem is Mr. Tumnus is in the service of the white witch and has already kind of pledged allegiance to this white witch and agreed to be an informer that will let her know if ever some sons of Adam or some daughters of Eve are found on the scene that, that, that he'd, report, he'd report the situation to her. And uh, I guess he, could, but he, but he you know, builds this great friendship with Lucy just almost kind of instantly. And there's the sense in which the things he wants to do he doesn't do and the very things he doesn't want to do are the very things that he does do. And uh, he, he tries to protect Lucy. He gives her a warning, even though he's already betrayed her. Uh, but as a result, he gets captured by the white, ridge, white witch, gets taken away, and gets turned into stone. And uh, Lucy's a little bit concerned about that, so we're reading from a little bit later on in the story. And now, said Lucy, do please tell us. She's talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Um, there's talking animals in Narnia. So she's chatting with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Do please tell us what's happened to Mr. Thomas. Oh, that's bad, said Mr. Beaver, shaking his head. That's a very, very bad business. There's no doubt he was taken off by the police. And uh, there's this police chief, Morgram, who's a wolf. He's the chief of police for the White Witch. Uh, I got that from a bird who saw it done, said Mr. Beaver. But where's he been taken, asked Lucy. Well, they were heading northwards when they were last seen, and we all know what that means. No, no we don't, said Susan. Mr. Beaver shook his head in a very gloomy fashion. I'm afraid that means they were taking him to the White Witch. But what shall we do for him, Mr. Beaver, gasped Lucy. Well, said, uh, what shall she do to him? Well, said Mr. Beaver, you can't exactly say for sure. But there's not many taken in there that ever comes out again. All full of statues, they say it is. In the courtyard and upstairs and in the hall, people she's turned. He paused and shuddered, turned into stone. But Mr. Beaver, said Lucy, can't we? I mean, we must do something to save him. It's too dreadful and it's all on my account. I don't doubt you'd save him if you could, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. But you've no chance of getting into that house against her will and ever coming out alive. Couldn't, couldn't we have some stratagem, said Peter? I mean, couldn't we dress up as something or pretend to be or peddlers or anything or watch till she'd gone out? Oh, hang it all. There must be some way. This fawn saved my sister at his own risk, Mr. Beaver. We can't just leave him there to be, to have that done to him. It's no good, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. 
No good, you're trying of all people. No good at all, says Mr. Beaver. No good, you're trying, son of Adam, of all people. In that moment, Lucy and Susan and Peter, despite Lucy's love for Mr. Tumnus, and despite Susan's uh, attempt at bravery and trying to fully understand the situation, and despite despite Peter's willingness to come up with some strategy by which we can kind of break in and rescue Mr. Tumnus, they find themselves face-to-face with their finiteness. Their finiteness. They find themselves at the end of themselves, you could say. Unable to change the situation, the circumstances of life, the realities that they are facing. It's not always a comfortable position to be in in life. Uh, One aspect of this kind of world that we live in at the moment is this idea that if you can see it, if you can dream it, if you can hold it in your heart, then, well, you can certainly have it. If you can just see it and dream it, believe it and hold it in your heart, you can have it. Uh, I mean... Pretty famous movie, uh, The Greatest Showman. They say they can say they can say it all sounds crazy. They can say that I've lost my mind. I won't try to sing it. I don't care. I don't care. So call me crazy. We can live in a world that we design. Because every night I lie in bed, the brightest colours fill my head. A million dreams are keeping me awake. And it's a great movie. And I really enjoy the movie. And the kids put it on the other day when I was trying to finish off my sermon. I found myself kind of in the lounge watching the movie instead of finishing off the sermon. A million dreams are keeping me awake. And you want kids to kind of have a dream and believe that they could do anything with their life if they knuckle down at school and work hard and all those. I mean, you want, you want kids to inherit that kind of idea, for sure. Um, but at the same time, one of the gifts of being human is our finiteness. We, we can't actually have a million dreams running through our heads and achieve them all and make it all happen and we're going to do this and do that and, and it'll, all, it'll all come true, no worries. It doesn't actually kind of work like this. Now, we can't do it all, we can't have it all, we can't be it all, despite how catchy the song is, and the little girls that want ballerina shoes and all that kind of thing. Part of learning to be human is to accept that we are finite and that this is a good thing. Uh, our finite... Our finiteness allows us to be anchored in a world of infiniteness, really. Rather than being tossed and froed by every opportunity, every advertisement, every good-looking guy, good-looking girl that walks by, every holiday opportunity, every uh, acquaintance we see posting something on Facebook that's amazing that's happening in their life. Oh, we could have that happen in ours. We could have... No, no, it doesn't doesn't work like that. Our, Our finite nature actually allows us to be grounded, allows us to be anchored in family. Anchored in friendship circles. Anchored in community. Anchored in a workplace. Anchored in rhythms of stability and predictability. Depending on your personality, that might sound awful. But there's a good thing about being anchored in rhythms of predictability and stability. Where we're committed to spouse, to family, to friends, to volunteering, to serving, to our colleagues, to our employers, to our employees, to our church community, to the wider community. There's actually something... Beautiful about our finiteness and our need to be anchored in those kinds of spaces that saves us from being adrift in a world of what seems like endless opportunities that you can't actually grab and hold and take and touch and taste them all. Develops character in our lives. Develops us as humans. We learn to accept our finiteness. It develops character at the core of our being. And we learn to accept this situation, circumstances, realities, 
relationships, especially relationships, because relationships bring other people that have their own will and personality and agenda and ideas into the situation. And, and we begin to learn pretty quickly, we can't control all of this. We, we, we can't control all this. We can't make this all do what we want it to do all of the time. There are things that are beyond us. There are situations where self-help is no help at all. Situations where self-help is no help at all. You are at the end of yourself and there is nothing you can do in your own strength to remedy, to fix, to turn around, to flip upside down, to, to, to save yourself, you could say. Even saying it out loud, you can feel a sense in which it kind of cuts across the grain of the narrative of the world that we live in. Knuckle down. Work hard. You can do it. You can dream it. They, they, they you know, don't listen to what people say. It kind of cuts across the grain. A million dreams are keeping me awake. And yet life has a way of bringing us to places and spaces that are quite simply beyond our ability to control. Especially when it involves other people. Because you can't control other people. And life's full of other people. Everywhere you go. Every situation. Every circumstance. Other people. Other people turn to stone. Can't change them. We can't fix them. Sometimes you see people that are kind of drifting off course in life. Making decisions that are potentially going to derail them. You do what you can to kind of come alongside and maybe at the end of the day you can't. People are people. They make their own kind of choices. Sometimes we make our own choices that land us in places where we've derailed our own lives. And suddenly, man, I managed to get myself here all by myself. I may not be able to get myself out of here all by myself. Though. The imposterous rule of corrupt principalities and powers. We've been looking at sin and death. This picture of the white queen and the white witch in the Chronicles of Narnia. They oppress and they ensnare us. And funnily enough, we can't overthrow them in our own strength. We can't sort it out in our own strength. We can't necessarily find the victory. You know, Paul himself says, the very things I want to do, I don't do. The very things I don't want to do, they're the things I find myself doing. He says, who will rescue me? Paul says, who will rescue me? Self-help is no help at all in moments like that. Areas in our lives where it feels like it's always winter but never Christmas. It's the theme we were looking at last Sunday. Narnia, it's always winter but never Christmas. Of course, Northern Hemisphere context, Christmas happens in winter. Always winter, but never, never Christmas. And we find ourselves, we have situations, we have circumstances, we have parts of our lives where it feels like it's always winter in this space. But never Christmas. This part of my life, that feels like it's always Christmas. I love that part. This part feels like it's always winter, but never Christmas. And we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, unable to remedy the situation. Powerless in the face of an icy wind that we can't seem to escape. It's no good, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. No good, you're trying of all people. Then he says, but now that Aslan is on the moon. But now that Aslan is on the move. What though if there is someone who identifies with the reality of our human weakness, our finiteness, and yet simultaneously is beyond human 
finiteness is of infinite proportions. Now that Aslan, Aslan is on the move, said Mr. Beaver. Oh yes, tell us more about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them at the very mention of the name Aslan. Earlier in the story, someone had mentioned Aslan, and the kids kind of all reacted in different ways. These Edmund, Susan, Lucy, and Peter, they all kind of reacted in different ways when they heard Aslan. Now, a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put in words, which makes the dream so beautiful you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get back into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Edmund had been telling lies. Edmund had been naughty. Edmund had been betraying his, his siblings kind of thing. Edmund felt a mysterious horror. Peter, suddenly, Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by. And Lucy got that feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realise it's the beginning of the school holidays. Which I still haven't forgot that feeling. Lucy had that feeling when you wake up in the morning and you realise it's the beginning of the school holidays. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand? Never in my time or my father's time. But word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white witch, all right? It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Thomas. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Oh, Lord, love you, son of Edmund. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most that she can do. And I don't even expect that of her. No, no. He'll put all to right, as it says in the old rhyme. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his raw sorrows will be no more. When he bars his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here. For I am to lead you to meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Once again, that strange feeling came over them. Like those first glimpses of spring. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Jesus is risen from the dead and is walking with two disciples, but they don't realize that it's Jesus. They weren't expecting it. They weren't looking for it. They were carrying a sense of disappointment, a sense of frustration, a sense of kind of winter had come. And they're talking with Jesus, and he's asked them why they kind of downcast. He goes, oh, have you not heard? Don't you understand the one that we thought was going to be the Messiah? He, he was crucified and killed. And we, we had such great hope, but it's kind of slipped away. Jesus starts talking to them, explaining from the scriptures all the truth concerning him kind of thing. And, and afterwards they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us and taught from the scriptures? Were not our hearts burning within us? 
just at the talk that Jesus, we're not our hearts burning with, it's a similar kind of feeling. That feeling we have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the school holiday. In John 9, a man had been blind from birth. And the Pharisees are concerned about what's going on. Pharisees are always concerned about good things that are happening that somehow reflect the kingdom of God but have nothing to do with them. So they're interrogating this man that has been healed. I think he's a sinner. And the man says, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He'd come to the end of himself. Self-help was no help at all. Quite simply, the situation was beyond his control. But someone, Jesus, someone of infinite proportions turned up on the scene. During Advent, we're invited to recognize our need for someone of infinite proportions to turn up on the scene in our lives. In our human history, in our world today, but in our own personal journeys as well. Advent's an invitation to acknowledge, you know what? I I need someone of infinite proportions to show up in my world. There are are things in my life where self-help is no help at all. Things beyond our own strength. Reconciling ourselves to God. (laughs) Summoning up some way of human flourishing for all people. Again, that's a theme we've been exploring right throughout the year in the Sermon on the Mount. that, that comes from, that's a word that comes from elsewhere. It's not something we summon up ourselves. That comes from this one who is beyond, who is of infinite proportions. Love of enemy. God, love our enemies. That, that's not something that just bubbles up naturally. You know, five people, really intelligent people, got together to do some brainstorming. Their conclusion was love of enemies. We reckon that's the future. But that comes from someone who is of infinite proportions. The ability to offer grace and forgiveness. We need someone of infinite proportions moving in our finite lives. And during Advent, we're invited to recognize that, but we're also invited to name the one who is of infinite proportions as Jesus the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who is strong when we are weak. The one who Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Therefore God exalted him. To the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. The glory of God the Father. We're invited to recognize our need. And we're invited to name the answer. Name the solution to that situation as Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Savior. The thing is, Jesus doesn't turn up in a blaze of glory like we might be hoping he would, though. If you're like me, things go wrong, things go bad, people do things. Your first thought is, God, smite them! It's the the blaze of glory that we'd love. But Jesus doesn't turn up like that. There's surprises at Christmas. Lucy's heard this talk of Aslan, and she's kind of hoping for this hero of renown. They're English, so... English folk legends like St. George or King Arthur or Sir Galahad. That's this idea that she no doubt had kind of in her head. But there's that poem about he's going to shake his mane and roar. and What's going on? She, he says, is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. 
I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he? Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just plain silly. Then, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when, he comes to the, when it comes to the point. That's right, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver, banging his paw down on the table with a crash that made all the cups and saucers rattle. In many ways, Aslan is so much less than what the kids were hoping for, and yet at the same time, so much more than what they were hoping for. Not a hero, not a knight in armour, not a warrior with a sword and a shield, but a lion. A king, nevertheless, the king of kings. The king of the son of the great emperor beyond the sea, and of the sea is a motive of chaos, which it so often is in the Bible. Son of the great emperor beyond the chaos. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the son of the great emperor beyond the chaos. Nevertheless, though, a lion. Aslan is something other than what the kids are used to dealing with. They're forced to reckon with someone quite unexpected, to, who comes to turn everything upside down. In the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, another book in the series. The children return to Narnia, but then they're going to leave for the last time. And Lucy's upset. She says, she's, she's crying. She says, it isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how, how can we live never meeting you there? This is when she goes back into their own world. But you shall meet me, dear one, says Aslan. Are you there too, sir? said Edmund. I am, said Aslan, but I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. That was the very reason you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may, you may know me better there. And thus the one of infinite proportion turns up in our world. Not in a blaze of glory, and not as a lion, though he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but not as a lion but as one that we must come to know by another name. Comes lowly, born in a stable. Comes lowly, riding a donkey, a colt. Foal of a donkey, it's the prophecy of Zechariah. Peter, Susan and Lucy, they want to know, is he safe? But for you and I, we want to know if this baby, is this, is this baby really of infinite proportions? Is this, is, this, is this really the one who somehow, when self-help is no help at all, when we come to the end of it, is this really the one of infinite proportions? Is he capable? We're forced to reckon with Jesus not as a lion, but as one who enters the vulnerability of our humanity as a baby. Back block town Bethlehem. Is he really the one? That when we're at the end of ourselves, is just getting started? Is this the one that can really deal with hearts of stone and transform them into hearts of flesh? Is this really the one that can overflow, uh, overthrow the imposterous rule of sin and death and principalities and powers? 
Is this really the one that can bring new life in the midst of the various kinds of endless winters that we all find ourselves facing? Is that is the baby? Ricky Bobby's dear little baby Jesus. Is he, is he really the one when self-help is no help at all? The one that is of infinite proportions that rescues and redeems and restores and heals and mends and is putting things back together? Well, in Narnia, something bubbled up on the inside of the kids at the mention of the name Aslan. In Advent, in Christmas, we sing specific songs. We sing carols. Salvation of Aslan is on the move. And we're invited to tune in and to ask ourselves, does something, does something bubble up on the inside of me when we sing these songs? I know the guys were going to do our holy night. I've got it written. I've got it written here. Does something come alive in the lyric and melody of these songs? Oh, holy night, the stars are shining brightly. It is the night of our dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till He appears, and the soul felt its worth. Soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious. In Advent, we're invited to sing these songs, to tune in to what comes alive in us. The King of Kings lays thus lowly in manger, in all of our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need, to our weakness, he's no stranger. What comes alive within you? we sing those songs. Chains he shall break for the slave is our brother. And in, in his name all oppression shall cease, shall cease. It's one of the great, great carols. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus race. What comes alive within you? Not at the sound of Aslan, that's a lion in the Narnia book. What comes alive in you in this world when we sing these songs. About the one who we learn to come to know who goes by another name. Jesus the Christ. A mysterious sense of horror. I'm trying to ignore all this stuff. That was Edmund. Mysterious sense of horror. That's alright. Song says Jesus born to be your friend. Do you feel brave and adventurous? Maybe maybe you've come to the end of yourself in regards to something, but it feels possible. Feels like maybe love and joy and peace and hope can be known even though I've come to the end of myself. Chains he shall break. Lucy got that feeling when you wake up in the morning and you realise it's the first day of the school holidays. What's the feeling you get when we sing these songs? When we slow down in the midst of the hustle and bustle? Pay attention to these deep longings that we carry. Sing these words that speak to these deep longings. All right, let's stand together. Our our finiteness can be frustrating. Sometimes we wish we had all the gifts, talents, abilities, skills, resources, everything in the world that you could possibly want. And it's like, what would you do with that? What would you do with these infinite choices before you? How would you cope with having made that choice that now you can't make that choice? Oh, why did I make that choice? 
how do I back out of that? It doesn't work like that. Our finiteness is a gift. But it, we, it means we find ourselves in need of one who is of infinite proportions. Let me close in prayer this morning. As you go this morning, perhaps at the end of yourself, overwhelmed, disorientated or deflated, having discovered that there are moments in life where self-help is no help at all, may you know a deep joy. Someone of infinite proportions draws near to you. May you know the thrill of hope. A weary world rejoicing. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as any curse is found. As you go this morning, may the eyes of your heart be open to the mystery, welcome, love and wonder of Christmas that is breaking out all around you. In every carol sung, may you hear whispers of truth. In every nativity scene you pass, may you glimpse new life in the end of endless winters. In every gift wrapped, in every bow tied, may you awaken to Christ as the gift of Christmas. And may you know in this season the love of God, the life of Christ, and the peace of the Holy Spirit as your own in Jesus' name. Amen.